I uh, appreciate you being here. You have to adjust your eyes today. I know you're used to seeing up here, but just kind of lower your gaze and you'll find me. Appreciate you being here to support this uh, Bacon Biscuits in the Bible. And we're going to be in John 13 today as having heard the wonderful introduction last week of this study, The Last Words of Christ. We come to the first of the five chapters that detail what John recorded uh, Jesus is saying and doing in the upper room when he, uh, they were observing the Passover meal together, which he then converted into the Lord's Supper that we share as one of our, uh, our uh, ordinances in the church. Now, I want us to begin with prayer, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word today, and I thank you for these who are here. And I just pray, Lord, that I'll speak with clarity, that uh, the application that I make uh, will be helpful to the people who are here. Lord, we thank you for what you were willing to do for us as evidenced by uh, what you would experience just hours later uh, from the time that John 13 uh, takes up. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I've concluded about what happened in the upper room is that Jesus, realizing that he just had hours left with the disciples, tried to get as much information into them as possible before he would get to the cross. I imagine they felt like they were drinking out of a fire hose or whatever they used at that time to put a fire out. And before we look at the actual scripture, what I want to do is share four points of background so that when we do get to the scripture, hopefully it will uh, clarify some of the things that are in, in this particular passage. First of all, I think it would be helpful for us to remember the emphasis that Pastor Josh made last week. We was talking, brought to our attention and reminded us that it wasn't just any ordinary Joe who was doing and experiencing what we will see in John 13. What we need to remember is the person and the work of who it was who was in that room with him. Not, not just an ordinary person, but it was the Son of God, God himself, who would kneel and wash feet, who would go through the experience with with Judas and talking about his, his coming betrayal, and then, of course, uh, his exchange with Peter at the end of the chapter. Second, we need to realize when we come to chapter 13 that there are two widely opposed agendas at work in the world that would come to on a collision course that would meet at the cross. Now, the first agenda that was at work was man's agenda. We could call it the world's agenda. It's the agenda of unregenerated, sinful, unsaved man. If, if there's a single event that happened prior to where we are in John 13 that, that reveals man's agenda, it's back in John 11. If you want to look 
at John 11:45 to 57 with me. You recall in John 11, that's where Lazarus had died. Jesus had delayed it a few days before coming. And when he got there, uh, having had the exchange with Mary and, and Martha, he goes to Lazarus' tomb and he calls him forth and brings him back to life. And what we find in, in this passage, 47-57, is that a number of the people who saw and witnessed that resurrection believed in Jesus. But there were those who ran to the Pharisees and, and told on Jesus. But what we learn in this passage of Scripture is that was enough to tip the Pharisees over the line and say, enough is enough. What I think is interesting is the conversation that they it's recorded that they haven't had among themselves. It's, they looked at each other and said, God, what are we doing? We got it. We're not doing this thing right because if we allow him to keep going, doing the signs that he's doing, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, it's interesting to me that they did not deny the fact that Jesus was doing miracles. It says, if we allow him to keep doing these signs and the word signs is an indication, another word for the miracles that Jesus was doing. So they did not deny the miracles. What they wanted to do was squelch the impact that those miracles were having on the people. And so if they could just silence his voice, then people would stop believing and they wouldn't have be threatened for their position of power uh, among the people of Israel or uh, fear the Romans. Now, at that moment, we're told that the high priest Caiaphas chided these Pharisees who were talking among themselves and says, don't you realize that, that it's fitting that one person die for the nation rather than the nation all have to die? Now think about this. Caiaphas was right, but not in the way that he was thinking. One person did have to die for not only the nation of Israel, but the whole world. One person, a perfect person, had to die for the sins of the nation. So Caiaphas was in one way right, he just didn't realize it. And so their agenda began at that moment in earnest and said, we got to kill this guy. And so they put a bolo out on Jesus said, if anybody sees him, let us know so that we can go get him and kill him. So that was man's agenda. Eliminate this nuisance, this threat to our, our system of, of religious order here in Israel so that we can get back to normal. So that's man's agenda. Squelch any influence of God, squelch any influence of Christ. Now, opposed to man's agenda was God's agenda. So while sinful man's agenda was at work to eliminate Jesus, God's divine agenda was at work to exalt Jesus. Now, in, in John 12, 23, if you'll turn on over to that, this is what it says about what was happening. Jesus answered them, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, he's already experienced the triumphant entry into, into Jerusalem. This experience, these words are growing out of, you remember there were some Greeks who came to the, a couple of the disciples and said, we want to talk to Jesus. So when they reported to Jesus that these Greeks wanted to talk to him, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, anytime we see in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, the word hour associated to Jesus, it's referring to that moment in history when Jesus, the Son of Man, would be glorified through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Now, if you know the book of John, you know that there were those who made efforts to rush up that hour. They didn't understand it back then, but early in his ministry, but there were efforts. The first was by his mama. When she wanted him to solve the problem when they ran out of wine at the wedding at Cana. And what did Jesus say? He said to her, I, don't, I can't remember, did he say, woman, my hour has not yet come. When you hear somebody say, woman, you better listen. And then his brothers in John 7 wanted him, wanted to know, are you going to Jerusalem for the festival? And he said, I'm going right now. And they kept urging him to go. And he said in, in verse eight, 6, my time is not yet at hand. In verse eight, 8, he said, because my time has not yet fully come. And so Jesus was fully aware all of his life and ministry that there was an appointed time on God's timeline where he would, his hour would come. He would glorify the Father, and the Father would glorify him, and it would be through his death, burial, and resurrection. But that time was not yet there. Now, we need to remember that the first mention, though the word is not used, of Jesus' time is in Genesis 3, verse 15. In Genesis 3, 4, uh, 14 and 15, we see that Jesus, uh, God talking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, I will put enmity between you, talking about Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall heed her seed, who is Jesus, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so that's the first mention of the fact that there would be a moment in time where Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, though the words not used, would bruise uh, the head of, of Satan and uh, Satan would bruise him by leading man's agenda to bring Jesus to the point where he would uh, die on the cross. Now, the third piece of information involves the word recline. We see that in verses 12, 23, and 26. Verse 12 says that once Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he reclined at table again. Now, you may be tempted to say they weren't reclining. That's not how Leonardo da Vinci painted it. Well, as much as you would want to defend Leonardo, Leonardo was wrong. Because the scripture says, as was the custom at such a meal, that those who were in attendance 
reclined beside a low table instead of sitting at a, in chairs at a table. Now, this is important to understand for, for a reason. The, the, and I, I, for the life of me, I can't imagine how this could be comfortable. Lying down on cushions, at least, not the bare ground, leaned up on their left elbow with their head close enough to the table to eat from it, but their feet and legs extended out away from the table. And my research said that as they reclined, they would align themselves, their head, with the chest of the person next to them. I mean, not up against it, but align it in such a fashion that if they wanted to turn and talk to them, to the person to the left, they could. And so around the table, that's the way it is. So you got all these feet and legs sticking out, you know, like a radius. Keep that in mind as we go through. Now, the final background piece is Judas' role in all of this. Let me give you some information about Judas real quickly. In John 6, 70 and 71, Jesus said that he had selected the disciples and one of them was the devil. So what we know is that Jesus selected and called Judas as one of the 12, even though he knew that Judas would one day betray him. In Luke 22, 1 through 7, we find out that he was a betrayer. This is the actual moment, the, the passage that talks about him leaving the disciples and Jesus and going and working the deal with the religious leaders to turn Jesus over to them for uh, 30 uh, pieces of silver. And so what we need to understand, he was a betrayer with, and was a willing participant in the world's agenda to silence Jesus. Now, even though Jesus had foreknowledge that Judas would do it, that did not force Judas to do it. Judas willingly agreed to be a participant in Satan's plan. Now, another thing we find from John 6, 70 and also John 13, 2 in this passage, he was Satan-possessed and thus Satan-influenced. This is all the evidence we need to conclude that he was not a saved man who lost his way but a lost man who never found the way. Now, John 12, 1 through 6, adds the fact that he was an embezzler. He was the treasurer of the disciples' money. And you recall in, in John 12 when Mary anointed Jesus' feet while he was eating supper with Lazarus and others, Judas protested and said, we could have sold that expensive perfume worth 300 days' wages and given the money to the poor. But, but the commentary on that was that John provided, he said, because he was a thief and he was wanting to get that money into the kitty so that he could embezzle it. And then the last thing we find out about him is in Matthew 27, 3 through 10, that he died a tragically regret, regretful man. You'll recall that on Friday morning after he learned that Jesus had been condemned to death, 
The scripture says that he went back to those authorities and said, I didn't realize I was betraying innocent blood. And he tried to give the money back. The chief priests and elders' response was, in essence, that's your problem, not ours. Put on your big boy pants and just get over it and deal with it. Now, Judas dealt with it. He threw the silver into the temple and went out and hung himself. So that gives you some background of, of the individuals involved and circumstances involved. So now let's look at the passage. And my outline is simple. In verses 1 through 20, we'll see an object lesson. In verses 21 to 30, a betrayal. In verses 31 to 35, a new commandment. And then verses 36 to 38, a big boast. Now, in verses 1 through 20, as I said, we see an object lesson that Jesus taught the disciples. Now, beginning in verse 1, let's read. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when he, John says now, before the feast of the Passover, this was not just to let us know the general time of the year on the Jewish calendar. This was to let us know the supper, the, the Passover observance of that supper was about to occur. And so uh, Jesus, then it says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. We've already talked about what that means. God's agenda to redeem all mankind prophesied by God himself in Genesis 3 was about to come to a climax. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is just to remind us how much Jesus loved those original disciples. And by transference, we can make that application to any sheep in the flock of the good shepherd that Jesus talked about because he says, I know my sheep and they know me. And so he was talking about the love that was there. He says, those who are in the world, my children who are in the world, what is the world? It's the world system. Those who adhere to the world's agenda that I talked about earlier. And he says, Jesus loved them to the end. The word end can be translated to the uttermost. And I like what John, commentator James Boyce says. It means to the end of Jesus' life, to the end of the disciples' lives, and also all the way to the end of time. Now, John, in verse 2, we see, And during the supper, the devil already, having put it into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Remember, he was a devil, according to Jesus. Satan was in his heart. Satan influenced him, put it in his heart to go to the authorities and, and negotiate for Jesus' betrayal. And so uh, this is just co further commentary on the role of Judas in all that's going on. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, 
and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself about. Now this is where we need to see that Jesus, it's important to remember who Jesus was. Jesus knew three important things about himself, according to verse 3. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Therefore, he understood his human, in his humanity, he was fully sovereign and Lord of the world. Jesus knew that. And then it says, he knew that he had come forth from God. Jesus was aware of his origin that he was fully divine. that he was fully aware of his redemptive purpose for which he was in that upper room with the 12. It says third that he was aware that he was going back to God. He knew he was about to go back to heaven. Now what's important to understand is that in spite of knowing all of that, who he was, what he was called to do, his place in the world and where he was headed, he still did what we see him do in verse 5. In verse 5, we read that then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He knew all of that, who he was, where he was going, what he was here for, and yet he, the Lord of the universe, shed his outer clothing, got a basin full of water, and got on his knees and did what a non-Jewish slave was expected to do for guests and a, and a meal. Keep that in mind. Now, can you imagine how mesmerized, even stunned the disciples were when they saw Jesus do this? Even if they hadn't fully caught on to Jesus' divinity and sovereignty or his mission and purpose, they still knew that he was their teacher and their leader and had no business doing what he had done. Now, if you want to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 8 sometime, other than on the cross, nothing in Scripture helps put flesh on the description of Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Now let's look at verses 6 through 7. And time is getting away. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, he being Peter, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Jesus said to him, never Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet or wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And if you are clean and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now what can help us understand what's going on here is an understanding of the differentiation between two words for wash 
in the Greek that are used in this passage. In verses 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14, the word wash is the Greek word nipto, N-I-P-T-O, meaning to wash a part of the body. Wash in verse 10 is luo, which means to wash all over. So there's a distinction in, in the verses. When Jesus says, you cannot be part of me, part means in the Greek here, to have participation in or to share in someone or something. So, so let's kind of walk down through that real quickly using those different differentiations uh, in the word wash. Verse six, Peter, Lord, do you wash part of my body by washing my feet? Verse seven, Jesus, what I do you not realize now, but you shall understand it hereafter. Verse eight, Peter, Never shall you wash part of my body by washing my feet. Jesus, if I don't wash part of your body by washing your feet, then you can have no participation with me in what I'm doing. My ability to fellowship with you will be impaired. Verse 9, then Lord, don't only wash my feet, but my hands and my head. And then Jesus said, he who has washed the whole body Needs only to have his feet washed when he comes to dinner. He's already clean all over and doesn't need the full bath. You, Peter, are clean. You, Peter, are clean all over, but not one of you is not. Now, here's what's going on. In that culture, when someone was going to a dinner, a, a, an evening meal, uh, to be a guest, they would bathe all over before they went. But obviously, walking through the dusty roads with sandals, when they got there, their feet were dirty. And so Jesus is using the, the symbolism here that washing all over is salvation, genuine salvation. And so somebody who has been washed all over by the blood of Jesus is saved. But living life... It's like the Jews walking in sandals on a dusty road. Even though their whole body is clean, their feet get dirty. You and I sin, even though we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and saved once for all. And so when we get our feet dirty with sin, then our feet need cleaning, but not the rest of us. So what... What, I like what Warren Wisdom says, we cannot have communion with Christ when sin is present in our walk with Christ, but our union is still secure. So Jesus is teaching some salvation theology here. Salvation, genuine salvation, cleanses you from your sin once for all. John 1, 1 John 1, 9 says that when we sin after we say, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and the cleanses of all unrighteousness. So there's a lot hidden in that passage right there. And when Jesus says one of you is not, obviously he's referring to Judas, but he hasn't spilled the beans on Judas uh, as of yet. And I, I think, and, and note this, Jesus washed Judas' feet just like he washed everybody else's. Now, in Judah's case, that was not suggesting that he was saved like the rest of them. He just got his feet clean. 
There was no symbolism in that at, at all that he, he was saved. Okay? Now, in verses 12 through 17, Jesus uh, tells them, he said, look, guys, uh, I want you to know, I want to ask you, do you know what I have done? Verse 12. Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. They got that much and all the years they've been with him. They understood that much. And then Jesus says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, and you also, then you also should wash one another's feet. Now, to him, uh, he was telling them, as your Lord and teacher, I have set an example for you. And as my disciples, you are expected to wash one another's feet. For I gave you, verse 15, an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, Jesus, Jesus is not suggesting this. He's saying, this is what I expect of you in the future. And, and so to add emphasis or uh, to make sure they got the point, in verse 16, he adds this reasoning. A slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So he's saying, guys, remember, I'm your master. You're not greater than I am. And because of that, you need to do what I tell you to do. Now, I find it interesting uh, that, that's, that that was the suggestion. If you can't handle it by lordship, then how about if I put a little icing on the cake? And verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So what Jesus was saying by doing this to one another, by washing their feet, and I'll talk more about that at the end, by washing one another's feet, they would be blessed. Uh, they would experience joy, satisfaction, sense of meaning and purpose, even happiness. Now, Jesus several times has alluded to the fact that one among them was not clean. Not all of them were in the, the true faith. And we get to verse 18, and it's time for Jesus to drop a bomb on them. It says, I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, that chosen could be as broad as the doctrine of election, but in this case, it's I have the 12 that he had chosen. But it's that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, when Jesus spoke those words, he quoted Psalm 41.9 and said and established the truth that Psalm 41.9 is a messianic prophecy about himself. And by the way, important to understand, if you go to Luke chapter 24 and verses 44 and 45, if you've ever wondered how the New Testament writers 
were able to take Old Testament scriptures and say this applied to Jesus, this applies to this situation. In that Luke 24 passage, it says that after Jesus appeared to them uh, the, the Sunday night that he was um, raised from the dead, that he ate fish with them and he said, uh, you know, showed them who it says that he sat down and taking the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, and he tied himself back to those. So if you wonder where those disciples got those explanations, came straight from Jesus' mouth. So Jesus, in this passage, Psalm 41.9, he's saying, this applies to me, guys. And what is it? Just as David had a friend, probably Ahithophel, who betrayed Jesus and went to Absalom's side, just like he had a friend who sat down and ate at his table, betrayed David, he said, there is somebody in this room who's going to take some salt bread that's been sought, and he's going to take it, and then he's going to betray me. Can you imagine what was going on in the minds of well? of the disciples, well, we know some of it. They were wondering, looking around, who is it that's done this? And so we go on through the scripture. He says, uh, okay, then verse 19, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does, you may believe that I am he. And so what Jesus is saying here is, so guys, up to this point in my relationship to you, I've generally waited until something happens and then you come to me and say, what does this mean? Or I say, hey, guys, this is what this means. So now, from now on, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen so that when it does happen, it will help reinforce your faith in me that I am the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now, it says in 21, when Jesus said this, he then said, truly, truly, uh, one of you will betray me. And they began looking at one another. And it says there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, understand the, the one Jesus loved is John's, this is the first time in the Gospel of John, but that is his reference, what he called himself in Scripture in relationship to Jesus. One that Jesus loved. He never said, I, John, but we know this is who he's talking about here. And so he's, he says, uh, it, it, it says in Scripture, I lost my place, I'm sorry. Uh, there was one reclining on Jesus' breast uh, whom he loved. Now this gives a picture that John's laid up against Jesus. Remember the alignment, alignment in front of the chest of the person beside you. And he just, I think it just means he turned, not that he was actually lying on his breast. Jesus therefore answered that this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now what has happened, Peter is somewhere nearby, lying, reclining, near enough to John that I think rather than out loud, because if, if he said it out loud, he wouldn't need John to be the intermediary. 
I really believe that this was a kind of a quiet remark uh, that Peter made of John. Say, hey, John, ask him. Because, and then that means the conversation that there was said where Jesus said, the person who, who eats the morsel that I get, I believe that was a quiet comment back to John that not everybody in the room heard. But I believe that Judas, who many scholars believe was just to Jesus left, which interestingly was a place of honor and a place of friendship, that Judas overheard that such that when Jesus dipped it and handed it to him, he knew exactly what was meant by that. And, and so uh, I think this is an explanation of why the other disciples, the disciples couldn't figure out who it was among them that had done it was going to do it and didn't recognize that when Judas left so suddenly, they had no idea why he was leaving and just assumed, well, he's either going to go buy something for this supper or he's going to give money to the poor. And so uh, th that's the situation that it, it brings us to uh, as we come uh, to verse 31 to 35. Now, before we get there, I want to look at verse 30 real quickly. Verse 30 has a profound word picture. It says, and so after receiving the morsel, talking about Judas, he went out immediately, and it was night. Not just night physically, but it was a night, it was night spiritually. The world of darkness was about to descend upon Jesus, which that man's agenda would lead him to the cross. But what I say to that is this. Jesus knew that Sunday morning was on the horizon when he, who in John 8, 12, had declared himself to be the light of the world, would come forth from the darkness of a borrowed tomb to bring the light of life to whoever followed him so they would never walk in darkness. And so even though it was not night, spiritually, Jesus knew the light was soon to come. Now, verses 31 to 35 uh, talk about a, a new commandment. Jesus uh, said to them in verse 31, uh, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. They would be lifted up, praised, and honored by what's about to happen. And then he says, uh, Where I'm going, you cannot go. And then he adds, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Prior to this, the standard love is love your neighbor as yourself. That means, ultimately, the standard of love was the individual person. If you didn't love yourself, I guess you weren't expected to love other people very much either. But if you thought the world of yourself, or as I like to say, if, if your opinion of yourself is the size of a hot air balloon, then your opinion of others 
should be the size of an air, a, bl a blimp. And so uh, that hasn't been the standard up to this point. Jesus raises the standard of what love is when he says it's the standard of the kind of love that I have loved you with. And so that would be the, the new. And, and then in verse 36, so that's the new commandment. But then in verse 36, we see a boast, a big boast. And that is from Peter, and that should not surprise us. In verse 36, Peter, I don't think, heard a word that Jesus just said about the new commandment. Because he was thinking about the fact that Jesus has said, I'm about to go to a place you can't go right now. And so he was loaded for bear when Jesus took a breath. He said, uh, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He said, Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. I really believe that was not an empty boast. I really believe Peter felt he was at that place in his relationship with Jesus. Just hours later, uh, he was, would be in for a rude awakening, a rude wake-up call. Okay, real quick. Let me give you six principles to live by out of chapter 13. Number one, we must never forget that God has a plan, purpose, and timeline for individuals and the world. We must never forget that God has a timeline for individuals, for the world. There is another hour coming when Jesus will come riding on a horse, on a horse to redeem his people. Our lives, the world may seem out of control, but God's in control. Number two, Never doubt that God loves you or believe that like milk, his love has an expiration date. God will love us to the end just like he loved his original disciples. Number three, to be a follower of Christ does not mean we have to go around literally washing one another's feet. To be a follower of Christ, I know there are denominations that do that, and I have no problem with that, but I don't believe I think this was a, a symbol of what God expects. To be a follower of Christ means we have a servant's heart like he had, and we do servant acts like he did. Now understand this. Jesus knew that washing 12 sets of feet could get messy, but he still did it. We need to realize that service that we are asked to do can get messy, but we need as children of God to still do it. Number four, even though God has foreknowledge of what decisions we will make and actions we will do, just like he did for Judas, his foreknowledge does not make us choose and do them. Therefore, we still, in exercising free will, are totally accountable for our choices and our actions. I'm not totally sure how that works anymore than I know how election and free will work together. I just know both are taught in Scripture. Number five, all the verbal evidence we muster to declare that we are Christ's followers 
falls mute if we do not love one another as Christ has loved us. And last, a spirit of overconfidence regarding ourselves spiritually is a dangerous mindset from which to live the Christian life. A spirit of confidence in the nature and the work of Christ is an excellent mindset from which to live the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to teach John 13. Um, I know everybody feels like they've been drinking from a fire hose, and I definitely feel like I've been the fire hose. Lord, I pray that at least one nugget of, of truth and understanding has come this morning about one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. Bless us as we part. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks for being here.